This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? Doing pretty good. How are you? Doing well. I'm in, a, uh, I'm in post-holiday mode. Definitely. Yeah. I'm living my best life, Rachel. So you're still eating cookies then, basically. That's what yes. that means. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, keep, I keep reading and seeing people talking about living their best life, and every time I see it, I sort of like shudder. Like, oh, come on. You never, that's the thing for anybody who has ever used that phrase or does use that phrase. Don't ever say that to somebody that you know who's an attorney, probably an engineer too, but definitely an attorney. <laughs> They'll just be like, no, no, no. Best, best, B E S T, best. That's what you mean. Best. Nothing's better from, nothing's going to be better than this. You're 25. That can't be best. Some pretty so, hard words right there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It seems a little hyperbolic. That, that, that's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. I can only see it when basically you're on the beach in Hawaii with an umbrella drink in your hand with, you know, millions and millions of dollars surrounding you in like a baby pool too, maybe something like that. Then I might I might be tempted to say it, that I'm living my best life, I got to say. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe for you. It is subjective. I guess I shouldn't be too critical. <laughs> I guess I, I guess not. But yeah, it's like, don't look, do you need me? I got 10 ways I could bring you down. I got 10. <laughs> I can tell you 10 things that bring you down from that dream. You'll start thinking differently about your little hypothetical. Uh, yeah. So I keep seeing stuff like that because it's, you know, it's like it's the new year and everybody's got their um new year new year new me kind of stuff out there mm-hmm. yeah every time i read it i'm just like oh no 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 why why would you do that to yourself why would you do that to yourself just can't understand it. <laughs> just just give it about a month and it all goes away at that point right that's when people stop going to the gym and yeah everything everything goes back to normal at that point so right then what so do you to- say then what do you say i'm trying to get back to my best life <laughs> I never hear that. Well, I guess it, given the times, right? Before it was like we all just kept blaming 2020, right? 2020 is just so awful, so awful. Then 2021, yeah, it's just still so awful. I guess a lot of people might carry that through with 2022. So then you could just be like, you know what? Ugh, again, just blame it on the year. Mm-hmm. 2023 yeah. holds all the promise. That will be our year. There you go. Yeah, it's a non-election <laughs> year. It's gonna be That's great. A good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Really looking forward to it. <laughs> so speaking about looking forward to, uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation today with Eric Freeman. Eric is a CPA at Beach Fleischman in Tucson uh, and elsewhere. I think is probably the the correct way to describe you, Eric. Is that right? <laughs> That's probably accurate. Also, I've never heard anyone be excited to talk to a CPA, so this is a good <laughs> first. <laughs> well, you're not a dentist. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I avoid those like the plague for sure. <laughs> uh, well, one of the one of the reasons we're excited to 
speak with you specifically, aside from uh, enjoying your company generally, was that uh, you have a bit of a niche practice in the real estate industry in particular. And this just feels like, you know, the time of year when people are thinking about their investment goals and what they're going to be doing for the year and how they're going to be deploying their time and energy and treasure. And quite a number of them are going to be thinking about real estate uh, for a variety of reasons. So I thought uh, we should talk about investing in real estate and all that goes along with that. Well, it's a great topic. I like bringing it up at all the parties. It's yes. very exciting. <laughs> so th this is good. I get to share some of some of these things that no one else wants to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I so let me let me kick you off with sort of a, a little teaser here, because one of the things that I always hear and I hear this from family members and friends and people that I don't even know, and they say, I'm going to buy a rental unit or I'm going to buy a rental property. And then usually it's followed up with something like, what do you think? <laughs> so when you hear something like that, what what is like, say, like the top three things that come to your mind? What springs to mind immediately? Uh well, the first thing is, oh, wow, you have a lot to learn. Uh, it's just my gut instinct, uh, because especially right now, every it seems like everyone wants to get into real estate. I mean, it's just, it's the hot thing. You read an article every week about how, you know, prices, you know, here in Tucson, I think, you know, housing prices went up like 35% or something last year, you know, something crazy, and, and you see... Uh, rents going up like crazy. I just saw an article um, last week, I think it was, where the top 10 cities with the most rent increases, and two of them were in the Phoenix area. I think it was Scottsdale and Glendale, maybe. And the rent increases were insane, double digits. Um, so everyone's getting, you know, everyone's mouth is watering over hearing all these things. So everyone wants to get into it. And it's, I mean, it's not rocket science. I mean, really, when it gets down to it, it's all just numbers-based. Um, I mean, there's more to it, obviously, but I mean, it, it's relatively easy to figure out, but you still have to figure it out. And I think everyone just gets excited and skips the education phase and thinks that everyone's going to be successful, which isn't the case. That's that's when people get, get in trouble. Yeah, definitely. And you know, sometimes I hear people say things like, well, I want to get into real estate investing because I want to sort of like, that's what I want to do. I want to be in real estate. I don't want to be whatever I am. I'll say I don't want a job. Things. Yeah, they don't want a job, right? That's not they don't a want to work. Job. Yeah, <laughs> they, they want think passive income and sit on the beach and have those million dollars surrounding them, right? Exactly. Just, mm -hmm. just washing in with the tide every month, uh, <laughs> filling the bank account. And I because I can't help myself usually to, and they're, you know, people like this, they're usually buying, say, single family residences, and I cannot help myself. And I usually say to them, well, you need to buy 15, not one. 15 is a business. One is a hobby. And they don't always take that well, including my family members. Well, I mean, it's true. I mean, one's just a headache because one, you miss out on economies of scale. You know, if we went to college, we all learned that in Econ 101. You, it takes all your profit, all your time. You have to do things yourself to even make it successful because you can't afford to pay everyone else to do it. So you have to get that. 
economy of scale and make it worth worth your time because otherwise it's just something you think about every time you leave town is is the hot water tank going to leak today <laughs> yeah and it's as true on a rental unit as it is your own house it's just you don't live in the one yeah right so it's you know i think i think that's perfect so uh, on a couple of little practical things because i think that really leads into it um so how you know for people that that you see who are kind of getting into real estate obviously markets are really hot right now prices are very high people getting into it usually don't have cash to pay all cash so so how are you seeing people enter the market what what are they doing oh that's a good question um well i think the people i think a lot of people have at least a little bit saved and so there's some programs uh right now lending super easy i mean it's it's uh i probably should not say never but it's never been easier to get someone to give you their money <laughs> and so you know there's some loans i think conventional financing you can probably go down to five percent and then i was just talking to someone who's looking at fha for three and a half percent and so it makes it look more affordable from a down payment standpoint. Um, and then, you know, I also work with a lot of established investors. And so they obviously are um, raising money or, or even new investors that are trying to put deals together are raising equity from friends or family to try and come up with down payments on properties. Um, so those are those are probably the most common ways right now. But, you know, that's even when you're not in a good economy and things aren't expensive, the the first challenge in a real estate deal is always how do you how do you get the money? And that's part of the creative part of it. Um, always trying to figure out that balance, get the money and have it uh, a low enough cost of capital. You can't afford to pay exorbitant interest rates, even in a even in a bad market. So. Uh, it's kind of a, the same challenge. It's just the math is a little different. The prices are higher and the interest rates are lower versus it being the opposite. Yeah. And and that's yeah, that's really helpful. And I think that's exactly right, because I think when you think about real estate investments, uh, one of the first things that springs to mind is is leverage. Right. Leverage is sort of the key mathematical factor behind a lot of the the reasoning in real estate investing. Leverage being you take on debt. To acquire the asset, you're using somebody else's money, in essence, to hold the, to hold the capital or the equity in that investment. The equity, presumably, at least when you stretch it out over a long enough period of time, will increase in value. The historical rate of return on real estate is something like five percent when you increase when you sort of stretch it out over a very long period of time. And so, so and you're getting some income stream off of somebody else's money that went in to acquire that equity. So leverage is is the lending piece. And then yeah. it seems and it seems to come in a couple different varieties, like you just you quite rightly pointed out. One is clearly bank financing, uh, which, you know, somebody may or may not be able to get. The second is friends and families. You know, just like begging and pleading friends and families. And then the third pretty common one is just hard money lending. And so what do you think are the you know, if you're sort of taking those three uh, those three buckets, what do you think the, the the pluses and minuses of each of those buckets are for somebody who's trying to search out and find that leverage so they can get into a deal. Yeah, and I guess I would add one too is mm -hmm. as a fourth one is private money. Um yeah. 
which some people think of as similar to hard money. The difference being a hard money lender is really anyone that, you know, it's anyone that holds themselves out as a lender and makes it a business uh, for the most part. And the interest rates are usually the highest of your options, but they're usually more willing to kind of work for you. But they're they're taking a significant chunk of something to work with you versus private money. The difference being that's usually you have some kind of connection in some way, whether it's someone you met through a professional relationship or it's a friend of yours or someone that's loaning you money at typically an interest rate that is less than a hard money lender, but more than a bank. Um, and that a lot of times is actually a good a good option. Uh, it gives you some flexibility. Um, but so as far as I guess the drawbacks, I guess since I'm already talking about hard money lending, biggest drawback, super expensive. And and in this environment with prices, it is in, you know extremely difficult to make the numbers work. And it all goes back to the numbers. I mean, you, it doesn't make any sense to buy real estate if you're not going to make money off of it, unless it's your personal residence because you don't expect to. So you have to make sure the numbers work. And I think most of the time when you pencil out hard money in today's environment, uh, because hard money is probably still 10 to 15% uh right now and so you pencil that out with the higher cost of acquiring it and it, it generally isn't going to work out the benefit of it is it's generally a little bit faster than doing like uh bank financing um they will usually the it's just a little easier to qualify for so it's kind of like a last option it's kind of like you don't have any other option and you can you can kind of make the numbers work with a high interest rate, but you're going to try and pay it off as quick as possible and and replace it with with cheaper with cheaper capital. Um, and then moving kind of down, I'm I'm thinking of it in terms of uh, interest rate. So going down to the next one, private money, the benefit it's it's similar in terms of it's easier to to get like hard money is because you have a relationship. And whoever's lending, it's generally not going to, um, you know, have, you know, a thousand page loan document for you to sign with every possible nuance. Uh, and they may have looser standards on uh, leverage and things like that. Um, but the downside, again, is a little higher interest rate, not as much as hard money most of the time. And I mean, private money can range all over the place. I mean, it just comes down to how how savvy of a lender you're dealing with and how good of a negotiator you are. I mean, you, you can literally get the same as conventional bank loan financing interest rate all the way up to hard money interest rates. I mean, it's just a large range, but I'd, I'd say generally you're probably more in the five to 10% range on something like that in this environment. And then moving down uh, further, um, bank money, the cheapest money, um, the most paperwork. So you're generally looking at more, a longer time to get through that loan process. And especially now, all these lenders are just slammed uh, with things. I mean, on a refinance, I did a refinance recently and it took like two or three months, I can't remember, versus four years ago, it would have been done in 30 days or less. And it's just because the money's so cheap, everyone is trying to refinance and do that. So it just takes a little longer. The uh, benefit is you get 
better terms typically. So lower interest rate and typically a longer amortization. So on residential or even you know two to four unit properties, you can get 30 year amortization, which is amazing in this environment when you have a low interest rate. The best thing to do is lock in long-term low interest rate debt on an asset that's increasing in value because you've just fixed one of your biggest costs while you still get the appreciation, which I guess kind of going back is is not the same with hard money or private. Those are going to be shorter terms. So those they may expect to be paid off in a year to five years. So you're not locking in that that good benefit for an extended period. And you have to figure out how to pay it off. And you don't know what the what the environment's going to be in a few years. Um, so that's uh, that's the bank financing. And then friends and family, I mean, that can that can really range from equity to debt. So it, it, when it's debt, I guess that falls more into that private uh, private money type box. And then as equity, you know, a lot of times that's how friends and family come in. You find something you want to buy and you convince your parents or whoever that it's a good deal and they give you a down payment or maybe they help you buy it all cash. Uh, and though that's generally cheaper, cheaper money for the most part, because you have a close relationship. I mean, it could even be free money to you. Um, so it's generally cheaper, uh, you know, just kind of like a side. I guess the downside is, you know, what if it's your friend? What happens if something goes wrong? You know, that's that's a important relationship. You know, if it's the bank, it's just. You know, it's the corporate monster who who cares if you lost their money and and uh, but it's your friend. You know that that puts a, a damper. You're gonna remember that when you go to dinner with them, and it may not make for good conversation. Um, so I I think that's one of one of the downsides. I I guess another downside would be if it's equity. You know, it's real estate's all about balancing equity and debt. You know, it, in a perfect world, you'd leverage the heck out of everything and reduce your risk and you take all the profit because you've got all the you've got all the equity. So every time you give out equity, you're giving someone else a, a share of the upside versus locking in debt that's fixed and you taking the upside, you're sharing it. So um, so that's a downside. You know, if it's friends and family, you know, maybe you want to share that. But just something to think about. You may not want to share share that upside with everyone. Yeah. And the upside. Yeah, the upside being the appreciation on the property or the appreciation on potential sale proceeds. And some, and so, you know, something that you mentioned that is usually the death knell in real estate investing is banks take a long time to process loans. <laughs> real estate deals don't wait for you. Right. So, you know, sometimes you see a mix of these things. So how do you see these sort of different buckets mixed together? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so right now, I think a lot of people, you see it every time there's competition, especially when people want to sell quick and you have competing offers, one's all cash for the same price or one's debt. Well, from the seller's perspective, the all cash is a little safer because you usually have like a proof of funds or something. So, you know, the cash is there. So the only way the deal is going bad is if something goes wrong during the due diligence or or they back out for some other reason versus when there's debt, you still have the due diligence risk. You still have them backing out for whatever risk, but then you add on the risk of something going wrong with the, the loan application and the bank in addition to that longer time frame. So 
a lot of times it's all about being creative in whatever way you can. So you can do like bridge loans or or short short term equity um, or even even trying to basically figuring out how you're going to get the money in the short term and then pay it off with better financing later. So um, so like for for example, I actually did this on on one of my properties. I had to do three different uh, loans. Essentially, I could get a conventional financing, but I didn't have the down payment. It was like a hundred thousand short. And so what I did was I had to. Luckily, I had a, a seller that was willing to work with me um, on the timeline, but I had to refinance another property, and then I had to get private money from another guy and then come up with the down payment for for it so it, it was three loans um and like a little bit of a little bit of cash and then refinanced all three of them later for a long-term 30-year debt um other same thing i did another one where a seller did a seller carry back for 18 months because it was a commercial property and they wanted to sell it right away and commercial loans a lot of times take a little longer. So for residential, single family home will take 30 days. A commercial loan may take two months, three months, depending on the bank and the size of loan and all this kind of stuff, because they want even more paperwork than residential financing. So get get the seller to do the seller carry back, put a little loan uh, or a little equity, and then refinance later with bank financing when you have you have three months to to let the bank go through all their due diligence. So um, there's a lot of options. Uh, you just kind of have to be be creative and think about where the money can come from. I mean, there's so much you can create. I mean, there's somewhere it can come from. If you want it bad enough and it makes sense, you can find it. Yeah, it goes back to the math, right? Like you're mentioning it. It just has to pencil out. If the math pencils out, then it's an option. If the math doesn't even pencil out, right, then it's yeah. probably not the deal for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It always has to pencil out. And sometimes sometimes maybe in the short term, it, it doesn't look so pretty. But as long as you have a solid long-term plan to lower that cost, it can work out. Yeah, no, that's really good. A lot of good, uh, a lot of good tidbits in there. So people who are starting out in real estate, and I completely agree. I think, uh, you know, your experience and what I see uh, through clients, I'm not invested in real estate other than my house. So I'm really a boring uh, contributant of this uh, conversation. But from what I see as an sort of outside uh, observer and working with clients is that they do exactly what you say. They if they if they see a deal and it's a deal that's very time sensitive, they'll find the money from whatever available source there is. That makes sense. And so it could be hard money lending, it could be friends and family, it could be a seller carry back note to just sort of give them a little bit of time until they can sort out the bank financing, which ultimately is the goal. They want that bank financing because usually the interest rate is better and the term is much longer, like you're saying. So, And that's where you start to get a little bit more of that arbitrage on the leverage where you got a long term, smaller payments over time, and in the interim, hopefully some cash flow coming in that's going to cover it all. Yeah, exactly. That's what you got to make sure you don't, you don't want alligators, <laughs> they say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the other thing that you hear frequently uh, about real estate is that it is tax, quote, tax-free money. <laughs> so explain to me why that is or isn't the case. 
Uh, it's it's definitely the case if you do it right. Um, so and it there's I guess I'd throw it into two buckets. There's one that's more tax efficient and the other one is not tax efficient really at all. So I'll start with the not tax efficient side, which is um, doing more of flips. So with flipping properties, uh, you have the higher tax rates that you're subject to. So you pay the same tax rate as you would if you had a job um, and you pay tax on proceeds. I mean, it's you you sold it for something and you bought it for something. And the difference is what you pay tax on. It's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of leeway. So that's the not tax efficient way. And I'm not saying don't do it because taxes aren't everything. They're just a, a big cost. Hold on, Eric. So when you see TV shows of people flipping properties in California, you don't think that's so tax efficient? No, I don't. I do not think so. Hopefully, hopefully they got something else going on that's that's a little more tax efficient because they're they're probably paying 50 percent uh, in taxes between state, local, self-employment. Actually, it's probably even higher than that. Might even be. So right now we have 37% maximum tax rate. So hopefully if you're selling properties in California, you might be in that high tax rate. And then when you sell property, it's more like a business. And so you have self-employment tax, right? So the, the piece that if you have a job, the employer's paying half of it and you're paying half of it. Well, if you're self-employed and you're flipping properties, you're paying all of it. So it's uh, 15 plus percent. So you add that on to the 37 and sl I'm slow at math, but what is that? 52%. And then, and then you had on in California, I think the tax rates probably like 8% or something like that. Um, I don't know, plus or minus, but that, I mean, that's yeah. 60% right there. Assuming you're in the highest, highest bracket. Um, once you get up there, you know, once you're in the highest bracket, every property you do after that, 60% of that is going to the government. And while taxes are not a reason to, to ultimately make a decision, when you see that 60% of your profit is going away to this cost, I mean, it's a pretty, it's substantial. Uh, it's nothing to sneeze at. So um, definitely something to think about that, that people don't realize when they're flipping properties. Yes. So, yeah. That, no, that's a good point. Sorry. I, uh, I derailed you a little bit. Obviously I'm, <laughs> I'm making a tongue in cheek, in cheek jab at HGTV <laughs> shows, but, but I think the same thing, you know, cause I always break it down at the end of the show and you're like, well, we bought it for this and we put in this much money and then, uh, we paid this much in labor and then we sold it for X. And so our profit was Y and I'm like, Hmm, that's not it. That's not the yeah. profit. You're missing a cost line on that little spreadsheet. No, they sim they simplify it for people, <laughs> make it look good. That's what gets everyone excited. That's why everyone wants to be in real estate now. It looks easy. <laughs> yeah, you must say you, you hear these commercials, right? Where I just go to a hotel for like an hour and I get this awesome presentation and I could be flipping houses and make millions of dollars each year. It's like, what? Of course I want to do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to be at this nine to five anymore. I could be doing this. You'd be a millionaire on the beach. All the time. <laughs> so, okay. So let's assume that you don't do any of this short-term stuff, right? You're not flipping houses, which we've already established. The premise is this is probably, that's probably not your best tax efficient strategy. So I think, right. I think, we're, I think we're all agreed on that point. Are we not? Uh, <laughs> seeing some head nods here. Okay. All right. So 
carry on, carry on. Thank you. All right, all right. So then the other, and then this is the exciting area, is more of a buy and hold type strategy. And so that's where you're buying something and you're investing in it for um, hopefully cash flow is a big piece of it, but then you weigh in the appreciation over time and everything. And so that's the other strategy. And that strategy, when you use it correctly, is extremely tax efficient. I have clients using that strategy that pretty much pay no taxes and and do very well, um, have a lot of cash flow coming in. Uh, so um, and how that works, I mean, there's, there's really uh, probably there's a few big items that make that work. One, uh, rental income not subject to self-employment tax. So that saves you that 15 plus percent tax right there. Uh, two, you get this thing called depreciation, which is uh, really just taking taking a percentage of your cost of the property and taking that as a deduction against your income. And so that's what I just, I like to just call it a fake deduction. It's not real. It has no basis in reality. It's just the IRS said, you know, if you buy this type of property, you get to take this percentage every year. And it doesn't matter whether the value goes up or down. That's what you're deducting. And so when you look at selling over the long run, if it's increasing in value, so it's appreciating, but you get to treat it for tax purposes as if it's depreciating. And so you get that right off every year. Um, and so that's a big one. And then the third, well, I guess there's going to be four now I'm thinking about, but I'll, third would be that you can get tax-free money from refinancing the property. So if you do a cash out refinance later because the value has increased over time, and so you get to now pull money and put it in your pocket. Well, because you didn't sell the property, any cash you're getting out of it is is not subject to tax. And so it's it's kind of like a nice ATM. It's a tax-free ATM. So you can you can literally have your wealth and and everything increase and and get cash from it and use that cash on whatever you want and you don't pay tax on it. And so there's not really not a lot of uh, opportunity for that in any other type of business or or job or anything. Usually, whatever cash you get in, you're you're paying tax. There's not a lot of ways around it. So that's a huge one. Um, and then finally, when you are ready to sell the property for whatever reason, maybe you want to upgrade into something else. Maybe you're you've had your fun and you're getting out. Maybe you just want to. Uh, move somewhere else, whatever the reason is, you're selling the property, there's tons of opportunity to either pay lower tax rates because it's uh, subject to capital gains rates, which which means it's has this preferential rate uh, anywhere, the highest potential capital gains rate being 20% versus 37% for your, your regular income. So that's a huge benefit. Um, or there's uh, various ways that you can defer the tax, like if you've heard of a 1031 exchange where if you sell a property and then you replace it with another like kind property and you follow all the 
fancy rules that have been around for many decades, then you don't pay tax on when you sell it. You uh, would kick that can down the road. And so you get those four main benefits just make it so incredibly you know, beneficial from a tax perspective. You really just can't beat it in any other business from a, from a tax side. I want to throw a question at you, Eric. So, you know, a lot of people right now are, you know, we're talking about just real estate investment in, in rentals, things like that. But obviously a lot of the, the younger generations are getting into like Airbnb rentals, VRBO, and, you know, a little bit different from what you would just normally think of as, you know, I've got a rental and every month the family pays me X amount of dollars where if I've got an Airbnb, you know, I can get potentially 350 a night if it's gem show season in Tucson. So do you see a lot of differences in terms of the taxation of rentals when you're doing an Airbnb versus like a long-term rental? Or have you kind of noticed any of the differences lately with more people turning to Airbnb versus standard rental agreements? I've seen, so I think a lot of I don't do a lot of Airbnb, um, like it's in a lot of my clients don't do Airbnb, but I definitely hear about it a lot and clearly a lot of people are doing it. Uh, and there are some important tax differences. One would be at more of a local level. So it's almost more when you're an Airbnb, you're almost more of a hotel, essentially. You're a one unit hotel or, you know, however many units you have. And so there's usually additional taxes at the state level, rental taxes. So um, I know in Tucson, like if you have a single family home that you're renting long term, you don't have to pay sales tax typically. But for an Airbnb, a lot of times you do have to pay some sort of tax. And and so it depends on every uh, jurisdiction is different from the city to the counties, states. They can all potentially have some type of tax that you're paying. And so it may be per bed, it may be a percentage. And so you have to look out for that. Um, and that's different from your typical federal and state level income tax. That's more of like a sales transaction type tax. And so uh, more compliance, more tax. And then um, there is a line that you can cross. Uh, so hotels, even though they're rentals, they're more short-term rentals, right? People are only staying in them for a night, five nights, whatever it is, less than 30 days. And so hotels are more considered ordinary type of income, not necessarily rental income. And so there's potentially a difference. You're, you're, you're going into a different bucket than if you are a long-term uh, renter. So there's definitely some distinctions between those two types of strategies. Yeah. And, and for anybody who, uh, you know, is kind of trying to weigh the options of the two, I'm the, the other, con, the other component to that, that has nothing to do with tax, of course, is that if you're doing short-term rentals, you're trying to get a lot of different good tenants. Whereas if you're yeah. doing a long-term rental, you just mm -hmm. need one good tenant. And yeah. I, and it, I think okay. people forget that it's the tenants that are the variable. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's a it's a huge part. Those those are your customers, and it kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning, where you know you don't want one house, you want 15. Imagine that with an Airbnb. I mean, just 
you to make it work just having one just imagine all the the cleaning and just the posting of the ad and the changing the prices and when something goes wrong you have to be more available with an airbnb because when they can't get in because the code didn't work or the washer dryer that they expected all of a sudden doesn't work you got to be johnny on the spot and you you got to fix it right away because you're going to get a bad review and and that is going to going to affect you versus a long-term tenant you get a little more leeway they're there for a year and so uh it's a it's a much different business and so if you have to you know going down and cleaning every day every time someone moves out because you can't afford to hire a, a cleaner typically because it'd be too too expensive for one unit they have to drive there every day or two to go clean one unit versus if you had 30 of them now now someone wants to work with you and it makes sense they can clean all 30 so i mean you definitely economy of scale is a is a huge factor there as well the other the other question that i usually get asked uh when people are asking me about whether they should invest in real estate after they've usually after they've told me that they're going to or they're thinking about buying some property the next thing they say is so should i put this in an llc so what about that what about structuring the ownership what's kind of your advice for people of course we'll, we can add any sort of legal gloss to this too but you know what's kind of your advice yeah yeah i'll i'll uh i'll kick a lot back to you probably but um you know especially when starting out uh that's definitely a big big question and my generic answer is i think it's almost always better to have it in an llc um and an llc specifically i mean maybe there's a circumstance for a different entity but llc is generally the entity of choice and i say that without even weighing too much of the legal side because an llc is so easy to create and to get it into um you know it's relatively low cost so even if it costs you whatever it is to have an attorney set it up and and deed it over into the llc it's well worth if you're going to own it for a long time because your exposure is almost you know you can limit it through insurance and things like that but your exposure potentially is pretty unlimited in a lot of ways and so by having it may not be perfect protection and, and you know Bren, you'd be better at, at kind of answering what you actually get but it doesn't matter really how much it is it's so low cost it's worthwhile doing um, and then from the tax side it doesn't it really kind of depends if you're going to partner with someone or not if you're just one person buying a, a real estate asset and you wholly own it and you wholly own the LLC, then it doesn't really change your taxes. It's going to be the same. So it's really more of a legal play. If you are partnering partnering with someone, then it's different because now you're getting into a partnership. And so that potentially holding ownership as, you know, in an LLC and being partners, members in an LLC versus being joint tenants or something like that um is a different potential ownership structure and may change how it's reported you still get all the same benefits tax rates self-employment all that but how it's reported the compliance piece may change so uh so yeah i guess i'll kick it back to you brent what do you think on the uh on the legal side how beneficial is it i i think it is beneficial there's 
every state is different, of course, uh, because we like to make things complicated in our republic. But the the short answer is it's much better to have it than to not have it. Um, any any sort of liability protection in the law as a general proposition, you're you're better to have the argument that it exists than to not have the argument at all if it ever becomes a problem. And so if your choice is between I will never have this argument or I will have the argument, then you want to have the argument, meaning the argument that it provides you with liability protection. Because the general rule for LLCs in most states is that the liabilities of the company are not the liabilities of the members or the owners of the company and vice versa, that the liabilities of the member or the owner are not the liabilities of the company. So you run over somebody in the street and they sue you. They under that theory, should not be able to reach into the LLC and say force you to sell the property in the LLC because your your debts are not the debts of the company and the company owns the real estate. And vice versa, somebody slips and falls on your real estate property, they sue the LLC on that theory, they shouldn't be able to then reach out of the LLC and into your other assets to satisfy a judgment against the LLC. That's the theory that they, they call that if they were able to reach in or out, they call that piercing the corporate veil or piercing the veil. Sometimes you hear it called. The the one rub with single member LLCs is that not in every state is it clear that you get that protection with a single member LLC. So in our great state of Arizona, the statute says that a single member LLC is an LLC. And the LLC statute says that the creditors of a member are not entitled to reach into the LLC. And it says that the company's uh, liabilities are not the, the debts and liabilities of the member or the owner. But I can tell you there are cr there are creditor rights and plaintiffs lawyers out there who think that you can still go after the owner in that case. The other thing that creeps up on people is that if you own the LLC it's, and it's a single member LLC or a multi-member LLC and you are actively managing the property and then through your negligence something happens to the property, you're going to get sued personally. That's just what's going to happen. Any plaintiff's lawyer who's uh, worth a dollar is going to sue you personally. So that's just that's the way it goes. Uh, and there's not a lot of easy way around that. But in some states, uh, the statute is actually clear that you don't get the protection at all. And there is one area in Arizona, notwithstanding with what our statute happens to say, where at least there is a particular bankruptcy case that says that if you had a single member LLC and you go into bankruptcy, and then what happens in bankruptcy is the court appoints what's called a trustee under certain circumstances. The trustee takes title to all of your assets, and then the trustee either reorganizes your assets and your debts, or the trustee pays off all your creditors. Well, that trustee, because they step into your shoes, according to the bankruptcy court in this one particular Arizona bankruptcy case, said that means the trustee can liquidate the LLC because you have that authority yourself. And so therefore, the single member LLC provides you no protection whatsoever. So the long and the short of it is if you're going to use an LLC and you want to maximize the protection, you probably need more than one member and you likely need another member who's not your spouse. Because uh, if your spouse is, you're just going to get sued together. Uh, and if you're in a state like Arizona, it's all community property, then it's all sort of in the same bucket anyways. So that's that's sort of the long and short way. But it's a gray area. There's no perfect answer uh, on the liability protection side of things. But the, yeah. one of the one of the other things that you brought up, Eric, which we ought to we ought to just sort of clarify for people, because I think this issue comes up and I see a lot of confusion about it. And that is if you have a single member LLC by default for tax reasons only. OK, so just imagine a fantasy land. But for tax reasons, <laughs> LLC does not exist. 
like you were saying, like it's as if you own the property, it's there's no difference between you owning the property directly or the LLC owning the property if there's only one owner of that LLC. Uh, and in a community property state, that means one owner and their spouse and they file jointly and they elect to have it treated as a single member LLC, okay? Then if you have a multi-member LLC, the default is it's no, it is now viewed for tax purposes miraculously, but it's viewed as a partnership. And for tax purposes, all of the tax benefits that you were describing, they sort of flow out to the partners. So the partners get to pick up all those benefits, all the benefits about borrowing money, taking deductions, doing 1031 exchanges with some limitations, uh, you know, being able to sort of shelter income streams with depreciation deductions, et cetera. All of those things flow out to the partners. So that is if you were going to, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you were going to pick the structure, it's either going to be a single member LLC because you get all the tax benefits directly or it's going to be a partnership because the tax benefits are going to flow out to the partners. Yeah, definitely. Almost always those are those are the options. There's rare circumstances where you might pick something else or or you might pick if you're in the multi-member LLC uh, realm and so your options are a partnership, maybe you pick a different type of partnership entity, meaning taxed as a partnership. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll call them some of the older entities like limited partnerships or limited liability partnerships and, and those, but and there, there's maybe some reasons more from a legal perspective and some specific situations use those. Um, but generally you wanna be taxed as a partnership or you wanna be taxed as a disregarded entity. You don't want to be taxed as a corporation that is no no for uh for real estate. Yes, and that's the trap that a lot of people fall into, right? They they do one of two things. They form a corporation cuz they heard somewhere that having a corporation is great and then they acquire the real estate inside the corporation or they have say an LLC and they get convinced one way or the other to elect for tax purposes to treat the LLC as a corporation because the IRS allows you to do it. Well, just because the IRS allows you to do it doesn't make it a good idea. And so what happens? So let's say somebody, they they make a mistake and they either acquire the property in a corporation or they make this election. Let's say the corporation is an S corporation. What happens to them? Oh man, well, you're you're not starting on the right Right, but that's for sure. And I, I've seen this a bunch of times. Um, corporations, S corporations. I actually saw one where it totally ruined a, the benefits of a 1031 because because uh, they had it in an S corporation. And and so in S corp world, what's really important <clears throat> to understand is that because and we we're talking about this at the beginning is that it's all about leverage in real estate. Well, in an S corp. From a tax perspective, third money, third party financing. So basically anyone that is not you putting money into it, whether that's a bank, it's private money, it's hard money, it's a friend loaning you money, all those would be considered third parties. You cannot use that debt to take tax losses against. You don't get any what we call on the tax world basis. So if you, you know, in a, in a simple just a simple example, if you're fully leveraged, um, so all of it's third party financing and you have these depreciation deductions that we we're talking about that you just get as freebies and it gives you a loss, you're not going to be able to deduct that loss on your tax return. It's, it's just going to sit there and carry over until somehow you can generate income or some other basis 
to take those losses. And so um, you lose them. That's the the first big item in S-Corp world. The other uh, really big detriment that you have with S-Corporations, and this applies to C-Corporations also, and the difference for, for those that aren't familiar is S-Corps are similar to partnerships in the way that you are electing to pass through items of income to the ultimate owners. Unlike a corporation where the corporation itself pays tax and then you pay tax again when you take money out, the owners pay their dividend tax. So an S-Corp money's flowing through, C-Corp money's not flowing through, it's getting taxed at that level. So um, what happens is if you want to get a property out of an S-Corp for some reason, uh, you don't have the same flexibility that you have with LLCs where, um, you know, and there's a lot of reasons why you may want to restructure. Maybe you're getting a new partner. Maybe, you know, th there could just be a variety of reasons. You never know <clears throat> what it's going to be. So you want the flexibility, but to get it out of any kind of corporate structure, you have to essentially treat it as if the property was sold at fair market value. So in other words, if you bought a property for 100,000 and then 10 years later, it's worth 300,000, and now you decide for whatever reason, you wanna hold it in an LLC instead, an LLC that's taxed as a single member LLC, let's say, well, you can't just liquidate the S corp and take the asset back and be done. Instead, it's treated as if you sold the asset for 300,000, because that's what its value is. And so your gain, if you paid 100, is 200. So you'd pay tax on 200,000, take that asset back, hold it now in your LLC. But at the end of the day, you still own 100% of this asset in that example, but now you've paid tax on it, even though you didn't sell it. So it, it's silly. It does, you know, it, it's definitely not a situation that, that you want to be in. No, you do not. Not unintentionally, I should say. Um, yeah, I could think of a few reasons where you would want a corporation to own real estate, but they are extraordinarily narrow. And so you definitely don't want to default your way into that scenario. It just is, it's not good. And if you want to get all the benefits, all these like great tax benefits that you're describing, you're just not going to get them if you're in a corporation. So, you know, you can kiss all those benefits goodbye. You with the stroke of a pen or the wave of a wand in, in the magical land of tax, you've just like gotten rid of all those benefits. And again, just because the IRS tells you you can, or some person you see on social media tells you you should, does not mean that you should. So I don't want to see any more S-Corps holding real estate. That's what I'm, this is really like a public service announcement. I just, I don't want to see any more of them. So everybody listening, you have to promise me, put your hand up right now and promise me I will not put my real estate into S-Corps and then I don't have to see them anymore. And I don't have to bring the bad news to bear to my clients that they uh, have a very tricky situation. Uh, hold on. I'm still stuck on what you said about not believing everything you see on social media. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> you can if you want. How about that? <laughs> it looks so nice, though. <laughs> it does. It's pretty. And they got graphics and stuff. But, you know, if you have an S-Corp, you can deduct everything. So. <laughs> that's what I learned from from social media. That's not true. Anybody listening, that's right. very much not true. Don't try it. It's not true. There are there are uses of, and this is where I get a little bit 
you know, the nuances, there are just a lot of nuances. That's why you have a job because this stuff is not even as easy as we're describing. And I'm sure for some people, like what we're describing sounds terribly complicated, but it's way more complicated than the way that we're even describing it when you get into the weeds of it. And there are circumstances where you can use S corporations in real estate structures. They just don't own the real estate. And I guess that's more the point. If there is a fairly bright line rule, it's that you do not want the S corp to own the real estate. Doesn't mean S corps will never be part of your portfolio, but they they just are not going to own your real estate as a as a general rule. So, and there aren't a lot of general like black and white rules out there in the world, but that is one. That's very clear. Yeah, yeah, exactly like you're saying the very narrow exceptions, very 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 narrow. If you think you have one, 99.9% of the time you probably don't. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and if you begin I, your question I, with, what can't I do? If you begin your question that way to your advisor, the, the answer is probably no. Right. <laughs> so I'm getting jealous of you being the host here. So I have a question for mm-hmm. you that okay. people ask me all the time and it relates to LLCs and everything. And that is when people buy their first <clears throat> rental property, they always end up uh, well, I mean, let's say they get conventional financing through a bank. Well, most lenders are not going to let you put the asset into an LLC when you buy it and you're putting, uh, you know, the, the promissory note and everything is whoever's buying it. It's not an LLC. And so they're having to buy it in their own name. And then I always get asked the question, uh, can I transfer my, should I transfer this rental to an LLC now that I've got the money and there's this uh, due on sale clause in all the loans that, right, that say essentially that uh, you, you, if you sell the property or change the interest in some way that's material, then the bank has the right to uh, call the loan due. And so you'll be completely liable for it potentially because you're the one that signed the promissory note. And so uh, I wanted to get your take on the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Well, you may not in Arizona, you may not be personally liable um, because we also have an anti-deficiency statute that might protect you depending on the nature of the asset that you're buying, but sort of setting that aside. I mean, the answer is that those due on sale clauses almost always say that if you change ownership, it triggers the clause and it gives the bank that remedy should the bank want to exercise the remedy. Um, it's not illegal to trigger that clause. It just violates the clause and it gives the the bank that remedy. So, And I get asked this question too. And the answer to the question is there's no perfect answer. It's whatever you're willing to tolerate. But it's like if you want to have this LLC protection you kind of have two choices. Choice number one is you can transfer it into the LLC and ask the bank for permission, in which case they're more than likely going to make you refinance into a commercial loan. You probably won't get as friendly terms. Uh, You'll probably have to personally guarantee, which means this anti-deficiency statute goes out the window, um, which means the bank can sue you or they can foreclose on the property and they don't get enough money from the foreclosure sale or the trustee's sale. They can come back and sue you personally for the deficiency. Um, they, so that's one option. The other option is you just deed it into the LLC. The chances of the bank knowing that you've done that are slim to none. 
and you just keep paying the bank and you just hope that they don't care because they're getting paid on time. There's a little bit of a, a strange element where you essentially have a personal loan and the LLC is paying it directly for you. And I could see a, say, enterprising plaintiff's lawyer. We were talking about the liability protection on these LLCs. I could see an enterprising plaintiff's lawyer say, you don't get the protection of that LLC because this LLC was essentially just your personal bank, uh, piggy bank. Look, it was literally paying your personal loan. You know, that wasn't LLC money. That might as well have just been your money. So judge, please ignore that the LLC exists. Let us sue the LLC or, you know, let us sue everybody, the property or the LLC to get at the property and the owner because they're all just one human being for legal purposes. So there is there's there's a risk from a liability perspective that you're adding facts that a, a crafty plaintiff's lawyer could come up with later. Um, but those are basically the options. There aren't really any other good options other than refinancing with somebody that's not the bank that'll let you do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, <clears throat> kind of where my head was at. And I, uh, you know, I'm not telling anyone to do this because I think there's always risk, but I've uh, all my rental properties that I had to buy in my own name. I transferred all of them to LLCs. I've never had a problem. Um, and even on one of them, I was trying to be a good person and ask permission first. And I sent them a letter asking them if it was okay. And they came back and they said no. And then I did it anyway. And that was uh, eight years ago, I think. And I've never heard anything. And and I still have that same loan. So I'm not saying do it. I'm not saying it's legal. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying I did it and I didn't have a problem so far. Yeah, where you want to be really careful is you do not want to lie to the bank. And especially when you're trying to get the financing, you particularly do not want to lie to the bank about your your financial health. Uh, so it, that can, believe it or not, land you in jail. That That's criminal behavior. Um, it's called bank fraud. So you definitely don't want to do that. And so you do have to you do have to dance the dance a bit and make sure that you're being totally truthful during the lending process so that you're not potentially exposing yourself to criminal uh, criminal liability, which is obviously worse than the bank foreclosing on your property. So but there's no yeah, there's no real clear other than Way to bring us down, Brent. Yeah, I know. Other than don't commit fraud, um, there's no clear answer. We can't stop now because now we gotta bring it up to a positive. <laughs> Yeah, I know. This is, I know. This is why people should never say I'm living my best life to a lawyer. The lawyer be like, best life. Gah! Best. Are you kidding me? Best. Uh, well, OK, so I mean, I guess bring it up. Summarizing then, I guess, uh, would be, yeah, definitely don't commit fraud. That's bad. I think we could all agree on that. And then, uh, no, real estate's a really interesting investment. I think there's but I think there's so much uh, misinformation and lack of education on how things are done, sort of the practicality of how things are done, that certainly on the tax side of things, there's a lot of misunderstanding and, and lack of education on the taxation of real estate. And people who are getting into real estate, if they're being uh, judicious about it, they would want to be educated on at least the basics of these things so that if nothing else when they're sitting down to do the spreadsheet that Eric would love to see that shows how they're going to be profitable, they can include all the pertinent information. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's a, a great summary. Just you have to 
it sounds super simple when uh, everyone's saying how much how well they're doing in real estate, but you really have to factor in all all the numbers, the legal perspective, and all the time and actual work that it takes to own real estate because it's not completely passive all the time, especially if you're the one running the show. You know, unless you're giving your money to someone else uh, and they're doing everything, but then you still have to keep an eye on your investment. But it's definitely not put it in and sit and do nothing uh, like you could with a, a stock, I guess. Right. Yeah, that that's very true. And we didn't even we didn't even dig into that. That could be a whole nother episode about what it is to be passive income. Because <laughs> like every time I hear that term, I'm like, are we talking about the tax classification or are we talking about the nine to five right. or six to nine or six to ten elements uh, to this income? Yeah, no, it's definitely a, a big factor and a, I think definitely a myth that's floating out there. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, Eric, uh, we could we could chat with you all day long, but we'll we'll be respectful of your time because we know that it's limited. So thank you very much. We'll we'll include all of your contact information uh, for people who are looking for you in the show notes. Uh, we'll try and if we're savvy enough, even add links to your YouTube videos, which people can check out because you do include a lot of this stuff in your YouTube videos and you're doing a lot more videos, too, so that people can look forward to getting even more pertinent uh, tidbits from you in the future. Yeah, and I appreciate you guys having me on here and letting me talk about the thing that I love to do. And uh, I, I get to finally say this, like everyone else, follow me on Instagram at Eric Freeman CPA. And like Brent said, I share my uh, YouTube videos on there and, and some other tidbits that I come up with. So hopefully we'll get to do this again sometime. Yeah, let's do it. Sounds good. Thanks, Eric. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us reviews. Uh, Subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much. Thank you.